So let's, let's look at Psalm, Psalm 2. Uh, deeply grateful for this congregation, your warm fellowship, the unity of this body. Our church is praying for your church in this season, and uh, we, we really love you and, and want to see uh, what God has in store for you. We trust the wisdom of the elders. We, we love this body, and, and we're looking forward to seeing what God has done uh, here and what God will continue to do. Psalm number 2. Let's read it together in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Travels into several remote nations of the world in four parts by Lemuel Golivere, first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships. Better known, simply, as Gulliver's Travels. Right, A classic work in English literature written by an Irish writer and clergyman, Jonathan Swift, in 1726. It's a satirical piece on human nature. It also picks up on a theme of many works at the time, travel writings. It was in vogue to write afar off in mysterious places. And so he picked up on that in a fictional way and wrote this famous work, Gulliver's Travels. It's his best-known full-length work, and it's a classic of English literature. You were probably forced at gunpoint to read it in high school. It's never gone out of print, thanks to those teachers. In it is a description of the emperor the emperor of a people who are now famous because of uh, this work, a people called the Lilliputians. Remember them? Their emperor was king because he was a fingernail breadth taller than all the other tiny people who took Gulliver captive that day. This is his description of the emperor. His features are strong and masculine with an Austrian lip and arched nose. His complexion olive, his countenance erect, his body and limbs well-proportioned, all his motions graceful and his deportment majestic. He was then past his prime, being 28 years and three quarters old, of which he had reigned about seven in great felicity and generally victorious. 
For the better convenience of beholding him, I lay on my side, so that my face was parallel to his, and he stood but three yards off. However, I have had him since many times in my hand, and therefore cannot be deceived in the description. His dress was very plain and simple, and the fashion of it between the Asiatic and the European. He had on his head a light helmet of gold adorned with jewels and a plume on the crest. He held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself. If I should happen to break loose, it was almost three inches long. The hilt and the scabbard were gold and rich with diamonds. His voice was shrill but very clear and articulate, and I could distinctly hear it when I stood up. The ladies and courtiers were almost all magnificently clad, and so the spot they stood upon seemed to resemble a petticoat spread upon the ground, embroidered with figures of gold and silver. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I returned answers, but neither of us could understand a syllable. Gulliver and the emperor of Lilliput, who humorously attempted to tie him down the king himself, just a fingernail taller than all of these other miniature people. All the while, Gulliver could have easily smashed them. And that story, so familiar to us today, reminds me of the second psalm. We are like Lilliputians when we attempt to assert our independence from God. And all the while, so often we remain oblivious to the power that is being so mercifully restrained. Psalm 2 answers and asks the question, who is in charge? Is there really a good God in charge of the world, in control of this universe? And Psalm 2, as it asks that question, answers it as well. And it supplies that answer of of who the ultimate power in the universe really is. The historical context of Psalm 2 is is debated and mysterious, but most agree that this is a royal psalm, traditionally labeled that way. It was used on the day of the king's coronation. This is when, on Mount Zion, a new Davidic king would be installed on the throne, and part of that celebration attending his royal installation would be the singing of a song like Psalm 2. But if you heard Psalm 2 read, and you have undoubtedly read it many times, if only for its position in the Psalter at the head of the Psalms, or its famousness and its messianic implications, we're all familiar with it, it sure doesn't sound like a celebration song, does it? It's ominous. It's foreboding, right? There's a a threatening kind of instability to this. But when you think about why this psalm sings like it does, we start to think to that coronation day. We start to think of even David's own coming to the throne and all the conflict that went on with that ascension. We think of the relative instability that exists during a monarch's transition. All the vassal kings that had subordinated their power to the greater Davidic king would start to rumble and question the king's real authority. And it was a time of tumult for Israel. 
And so what we see in Psalm 2 is not merely a, a political uh, reading on ancient kingship, but what we really see is this whole drama taken to a celestial level, taken all the way to the top. And what we see in Psalm 2 is the attempted assassination of God and his Messiah given to us in four acts. That's the best way to look at it. It's the way the Hebrew text is divided, verses 1 through 3 are the sovereign, small s, and the sovereign, capital S. And then we'll look at verses 4 through 6, which is the scorn of the sovereign. Verses 7 through 9, which is the son of the sovereign. And then the final section, the psalm concludes in verses 10 through 12, with salvation in the son. But first let's look at verses 1 through 3, the sovereigns and the sovereign. The psalm begins with a question, and it's a question that's stated quite directly in verse 1, but a question that arches over these first few verses. Why are the nations in an uproar? And that why is implied throughout these opening verses. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Why do the kings of the earth take their stand? And why do the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a question that is not a cry of anxiety. It is an expression of absolute astonishment, right? The, the writer is incredulous. He's asking, how can these people be so stupid? This is profoundly absurd. Why would the nations rage and the people plot, or your Bible may say conspire, a word too weak to understand the significance of that Hebrew term. It's a word that you saw in Psalm 1, famously, in his law, he meditates day and night. It's a word that when the Hebrews applied it positively to the study of Scripture, for example, is in Psalm 1, uh, meditation was, a, was a, a repeated, quiet a thinking over, a reading of Scripture, a memorization, almost a mumbling of God's Word as you worked your way through it. The same word is used in Psalm 2, but here it's cast negatively. The people's conspire or plot. It's a word best translated murmur or mutter. The people, look at the nouns, the nations, the people, the kings, the rulers. These people are all people in a measure of authority. And they're all uh, muttering and murmuring. And it says that their, their words are in vain. There's no semblance of sanity here. The outcome of all their plans and schemes is uh, really a vain plot. And their most violent plans of mutiny will only result in their destruction. And so the psalmist rightly asks, why? And then you look at the verbs in these opening verses and you see the word rage and plot and take counsel together or conspire together. And all of it is a description of their ludicrous attempts at autonomy, at independence. They're saying, in effect, now is the time to make our move. It's the time to unite all our, all our powers to overthrow God himself. This time of transition became, for these peoples, an opportunity for revolt. Uh, the kings of the nations against the king of the universe. So nations, peoples, kings, rulers are all reviewing their positions. They're calculating their odds. They're secretly plotting. Uh, there's meditation and rebellion. This muttering is going on. Uh, in verse 2, you see the words, they set themselves. That's words speaking of preparation for war. 
And what's their goal in all this? You see it in verse 3. They have one aim, and it's to rid themselves from their oppressors. They use words familiar to an agricultural world, farming words, bonds and cords, really a leash. Uh, those things used, those implements used to tie a domesticated animal to a yoke. It's all symbols of subjugation. What are they doing? They're declaring their independence from God. Not from a political power. You see, it's against, verse 2, last part, against Lord, all caps. It's the word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. They have united in their rebellion against God himself, against Yahweh, to overthrow his authority because they say no one will tell us what to do and against his anointed one, his Messiah. And the psalmist realizes what we know as well, that any attempt to overthrow the ultimate will be futile. Friends, our world doesn't understand this, do they? Our world hates God. And it's not a passive hatred. It's active. It's not mere apathy. It is hate, especially with reference to His authority, right? When we present the gospel to people, the glorious good news of, of Christ's salvation at Calvary, purchased freely for all who would trust in Jesus Christ, when we present that absolute truth with no uh, other competing philosophies that can compare to it, no other routes to make it to God, to be approved by God, people don't like that message because it's a message of authority. They don't like dictatorships and they don't like democracies. They want to throw off authority. It is the nature of man. They say, we don't want this one to reign over us. This, most basically, when we understand the nature of man, it helps us understand why there would ever be anarchy in the world. We understand why people desire to be free of authority. We understand even fundamentally why children defy their parents and why students uh, say, teachers, leave those kids alone, and why wives uh, rebel against their husband's leadership, and why uh, men who are employed uh, say to their bosses, man, don't tell me what to do. All of that is that intrinsic part of human nature that uh, bucks at authority. And we all understand that because it's in our own hearts. This is a dangerous idol to us. It's an idol called autonomy. You saw it at the Tower of Babel, right? Let us unite. Let us build a tower in opposition to God. Sin is so irrational because it looks at our Creator and it clenches a fist at Him and says, we will do it our own way. And all of sin finds its root in selfish and sinful autonomy. You see it, don't you? You see it in our own lives. You see it in our relationship with authorities. And you see it, I think, most symbolically in car keys. Car keys. Right? Car keys. I work with college students. I work with high school students for a long time. Usually people over the age of 23 find me unbearable. So thanks for your grace again. But high school students, there's probably some in this room, long for that day, for that physical expression of autonomy when they hear the jingling of the keys. Mom and Dad, can I borrow the car? I remember the day I 
usurped or inherited. It depends on who you ask. My father's 1986 Ford F-150. We'll call her Big Country because I called her Big Country. And I remember the feeling of freedom that went with that acquisition and the plans that my friends and I made. We would drive to Best Buy and beyond. The road was ours. The open highway before us. All of life and we plotted our our road trips that we never took. And we thought about what it would be like to escape authority because we were so foolish. You know, that's why we train our children, right? It's not just so that they know mom and dad are in charge. It's so that they would learn how dangerous autonomy is, not just for kids, but for everyone. Because we're all people under authority, aren't we? I mean, when you were little, it was, it was mom and dad. And when you got older, you started to realize, well, their authority is, yes, a reflection of the Lord's authority, but there's more authority that they were only preparing you for. There's teachers, and there's employers, and there's church authority, and there's governmental and civil authority. And we look around us and we see that God has built a world that's very reflective of someone being in charge of this universe. And so this universal idolatry of autonomy is very familiar with us. We look at the newspaper and we see this irrational sin everywhere. Nations conspiring, people plotting, the very thing that the human race will attempt just prior to Christ's return, according to the book of Revelation. And so we see the sovereign and these sovereigns. And we're reminded that our own hearts are this way as well. Famous Christian dead guy. Charles Hayden Spurgeon, though dead he speaks, said this, To the graceless neck the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? If you love autonomy, you cannot love Christ because he calls you to be his slave. So that's act one, the sovereigns and the sovereign and their attempt at autonomy. Is God nervous? Is he upset? Is he scared? Well, indeed, he is shaking. He is quaking, but not in fear. Act two, verses four through six, the scorn of the sovereign. God shakes with laughter. What's God's response to this rebellion? Well, it's futile. It's misguided. It's ultimately laughable, right? When they say, let us tear his fetters off us, verse 4, his response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I don't know if your theology has room for God's laughter, but move some other stuff over and make a space in your theological mind for God's laughter. Make lots of space. Watch. Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. I don't want dry bones. There's a character in the Bible, 
named laughter. His mother, Sarah, named him that. Psalm 126.2 says this, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The people look at God's saving work and they laugh and they rejoice. God laughs in Job a number of times in the book of Ecclesiastes. The smartest man to ever live reminds us uh, that there is a time to laugh. Psalm 32, 11, God commands people who are glad in Him to rejoice and to laugh, to exult. Proverbs again reminds us that a glad heart makes a cheerful face and that even in laughter a heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. And you see God laughing in Scripture. The Lord laughs at His enemies in Psalm 59. He laughs at them in Psalm 37. He laughs at the threat of javelins in Job 41. But most often in the Scripture, when God laughs, it is a laugh, not of chuckle-headedness. I made up that word. But a laugh of ridicule. A laugh of derision, of contempt, a laugh of, of scorn. And so this section really is the scorn of the sovereign. What we see here is divine derision in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and it's not a laugh of pleasure. God holds these rebels in derision. And those who see themselves as just a hair, a fingernail's breadth taller than the rest would dare to attempt to defy God's authority. Well, all the while, He is the one who sits on His throne and He laughs, enthroned in heaven. God knows very well He is not the only King. He knows that there are lots of earthly kings, but His laughter comes because He's confident of His absolute sovereignty. We look around this world and, and perhaps we feel threatened or anxious. We see terrorists with bombs strapped to their backs and dictators uh, arming themselves with nuclear armament. And we hear people declaring their, their uh, anger towards God and their uh, potent and, and seemingly indestructible atheism and others who call themselves uh, believers yet assert their own will over the will of God. And we have to remind ourselves that He's on His throne and He laughs. Everything God does is perfect and righteous and good. And if you have a God who is not high and lifted up and exalted and on His throne, sovereign over all, then you have an idol in your mind that needs to be shattered by the truth of the Word of God. And maybe we all have lots of confidence in God's sovereignty theologically, right? Practically, it becomes more of a challenge when we start to act as if we are something. When God changes our plans. When God meets us and what we thought the next years would look like are apparently not what God had in mind. That's when our confidence in the sovereignty of God becomes real. That's when the rubber hits the road, right? That's when theology becomes practical theology. Human beings who exert themselves over God's authority are responded to by God with laughter. And he said, I, had three, I have three little kids, and it's true. He wasn't making that up. There are three of them. Adeline is five. Ella is three. 
and the dukester is one. And there's something we like to do, the three of us. They don't have a lot in common because two are very girly and one is dude city. I, I knew that boys are different than girls. I have a wife. I've lived on earth. Uh, but this is a major illustration. I mean, it's become very real to me to see the differences of, of dude city. And, but there's something they all three like to do. I like to get down on the ground and they love to wrestle me. Come home from work, and like many dads do, I wrestle them. And they attack with all their force. With all their power, their collective 48 pounds comes at me in a trinity of opposition. Uh, Adeline swinging off of the couch and Ella coming at me low and the dukester kind of crawling and barely making it. And they're coming after me and I hold them back and I say, do your worst. Ha 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 ha. And I laugh. I am not threatened in the least by their attack. Potentially, the day will come when that becomes a more dangerous situation. <laughs> but I got time. And now I laugh. And as a child wrestles with his father, the father knows that it is a futile challenge. And he laughs because there isn't the slightest threat to him. God laughs and his disdainful mockery is a reminder of how ludicrous arrogance is before God. The arrogant ignorance of our own impotence is a rebellion that is sadly comical. And this laughter starts to turn in these verses to anger because he says then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his authority. Why? Well, verse 6 is the declaration of an event. Look at it. Verse 6, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As for me, these are important pronouns here. I have set my king on Zion. And Zion is what? It's my holy hill. In Hebrew, it's emphatic. It is I. I have set my king on my hill. This enthronement that God describes as, as not able to be usurped, as uh, resistant to all rebellion, this enthronement is on his mountain. It's his king. He has installed him, and he says, it is I. God declares an event to these rebellious people. And it's the reason he's confident and it's the reason his enemies are in dread, verse 5. It's the reason for supreme confidence. There's not the hint of anxiety. There's not a hint of nervousness. There's such wonderful security in absolute sovereignty. You know, I don't find the slightest bit of encouragement from a Christian who, who tells me that in their uh, worldview that God and the devil are duking it out. These two opposing forces of equal powers and, and sovereignty. And it's a battle uh, that you know, in the end God will overcome, but, but by an inch and not a mile. That dualism is not biblical. I like what Luther said. The devil is God's devil. That's a good reminder of what this kind of confidence looks like when we have an understanding of, of the scorn of this sovereign. 
that we find comfort and peace in His sovereignty, what Jonathan Edwards called sweet sovereignty. And you find it on the pages of the Bible. When you learn about God's sovereignty, you don't let it chafe against our fallen instinct of autonomy. But we see that the opposition cannot stand. The certainty of the existence of Christ's sovereignty says, yet I have set the power which He maintains it. I have set the place of its manifestation, the holy hill of Zion, and all the blessings that will flow from it. Christian, you can have absolute confidence in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Absolute confidence. And from that, our anxiety, our fear, melt away. Spurgeon, I I quote him a lot because I feel like we would both eat a lot of sandwiches. We have that in common. And I appreciate his beard. But he he has a, a line that I think of quite often little tiny sentence it's faith smiles serenely that's so helpful to me when i think about the sovereignty of god and my trust in him to know that that my faith can smile in light of every trial and every adversity and there is a serenity that comes from faith in a god who has every molecule of this universe under his wonderful control act three begins To move from the sovereigns and the sovereign to the scorn of the sovereign. To the son of the sovereign. And you meet him in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There is a guaranteed assurance of victory that's introduced to us in verse 7. And it carries on through verse 8 and 9. Ask of me, verse 8, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Again, this merciful warning to all those who seek to live in defiance to God. It becomes really an urgent summons to humility. We see this divine decree spoken to us and more specifically now the audience of this speech turns to the king's son and he says to his own son those words in verses 7 through 9. He speaks to his son and he gives his son a divine decree. A voice from heaven to Mount Zion to this very day of the king's enthronement. Yahweh himself speaks to this king who he calls his son and says to me, but as for me, and and Yahweh says to me, verse 7, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And we're introduced to the son of the ultimate sovereign. We're introduced to uh, the anointed one or the promised one, uh, a word that we're familiar with as the word Messiah. And we really see three features in these verses, three features of this uh, messianic rule that's, that's promised from the sovereign to his son. First of all, you see that the rule is legitimate, right? This isn't a usurper here. This is a son. He says, you are my son and I have begotten you. This isn't a rebel, this is a son. Yahweh himself has appointed this son. In fact, he has begotten this son. He says in verse 6, I have installed him. It's Yahweh's doing. He has put him in place. So his rule is is absolutely legitimate. Secondly, you see that his rule is exhaustive, right? So he says, ask of me, 
Verse 8, and I will surely give what? The nations as your inheritance. The nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth for your possession. There is not an inch of territory outside of the rule of God's appointed king. He's telling him that his rule is exhaustive. It's universal, it's comprehensive, it's legitimate, and thirdly, it's forceful rule. Look at that description in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That's a powerful symbol, right? Really, that rod of iron is is a scepter, is what's being described. Uh, The symbol of kingly power, right? But... It's not just a scepter, it's transformed into a massive battle mace. I used to play video games, I know words like battle mace. The scepter becomes a weapon, a battle mace, and the substance of the rod is iron, something intrinsically strong, really the strongest possible substance the psalmist could conjure up. And so he sees this this rule of the king and this weapon of the king as something intrinsically and automatically strong. And then he describes what it will shatter them like earthenware, something the opposite of iron. The substance of the rod is intrinsically strong, but the substance of pottery is inherently fragile, right? And so what is God saying to his son, to this uh, rightful king? He says, you have guaranteed victory. You will pulverize your enemy. The Messiah forcibly enforces his reign on a rebellious people. And I wonder if that's in your worldview. Because it has great impact on daily life. To know that God's chosen son will win. That his reign, which is real now, will be far more real in the future when it is realized and it is earthly and it is powerful and it is obvious and evident to all. You know, three times in the book of Revelation, uh, it quotes verse 9. You shall break them like a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Once concerning a Christian's victory and twice concerning the Lord's victory over his enemies. And so this appointed king of verse 7 will establish his kingdom in verse 8. And is it certain? Well, absolutely it is. It's the decree of Yahweh. So no matter what news happens, no matter what rumors are going on, no matter the movement of nations, no matter what the headlines are about Iran next week, we all know where history is headed, right? At the end of the day, this is how we will get through. That God's ultimate power of the universe is, is Himself and His Messiah to whom He promises the entire world. And there's great comfort in that. And we've reached the final act of this four-act play. And if, God forbid, you were God or I was God, how would you end this? More wrath? More demonstration of sovereignty? A flexing of divine muscle that continues? Rightfully so. Maybe that's how we would write that final act. But if you think you finally figured out this God of justice... He shows you in these last three verses that he is beyond figuring out. And so part four is rightly and powerfully shown to us.
as salvation in the Son. It's an urgent summons to humility. Listen to him speak to these kings in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. It's a summons from God himself. He says, O kings, he he pleads with them, be wise, be warned, take heed, consider the implications, the futility of defying his authority. And he invites them to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What a strange and wonderful biblical combination that is. It's not unfamiliar to us, is it? That combination of joy and trembling. It's how each one of us who rightly worships the Lord Jesus Christ must approach God, is it not? With fear and with rejoicing, with trembling and with great joyful confidence. That's how we worship the King of Kings. That's how we approach the Lord of Lords. Through the shed blood of Christ, we know that we can rejoice and tremble simultaneously. That we have full access to God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That He has made a way for us. That the ultimate power in the universe demands that we worship Him joyfully. But if we worship joyfully apart from a genuine fear of the Lord, it would be dangerous presumption. And so we come with both. And He invites these kings to come with both. Joy and trembling. Maybe you grew up like me in a church that had an altar call every week. Maybe they called it an invitation. Right? An invitation. You sing that song, maybe come just as I am, or one of those. Sing it 400 times. Every single service at the end. And that word invitation has, has crept into our Christian vocabulary. And it's a funny word, isn't it? An invitation. We know what those are, right? You get them in the mail for a five-year-old's birthday party, right? An invitation. Or you get an evite. I don't like those evites. Put it on paper, people. Invitation. They have cake there. Maybe a piñata. Right? That's an invitation. And you could, whether evite or paper, Attend, or you can politely decline. Well, the call of the gospel is far more than an invitation. When God summons these kings, it's not an an option that they can refuse. It's not to decline, because to decline is to disobey. To refuse is to defy. What we read here, much like the gospel invitation is that this is a summons more than an invitation. Is this an invitation or is this an ultimatum? 
But either way, the whole tone and tenor of these last verses is grace because God invites or summons or declares them that they must not defy Him. He gives them this ultimatum and in as much power as you see in the Old Testament alongside of perhaps the prophet Isaiah, you hear Christ preached in verse 12. Do homage, your Bible may say, or kiss the Son. That He not become angry and you perish in the way. Why? To avoid wrath, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. The words are in mid-course as if it could flare up in a moment. We all understand that our time here is limited, right? That we are a vapor compared to this eternal King. And so we are told to kiss the Son to avoid wrath. And we're told to kiss the Son to experience joy. That final line, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The reality of both is it's not one or the other. We come to Christ through the good news of the Gospel, of the message that Christ died to save sinners. That God sent His Son to sinful man the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. That we would understand both. That we must surrender to avoid His wrath. And we must serve God to experience His joy. What's it mean to serve and surrender? Well, it's what this whole psalm is about. It expresses itself in submission to the King, doesn't it? To kiss the Son. It's in the ancient world when an A Near Eastern king would have reported the subjugation of a conquered king. He would have brought that king before him. And that king is a symbol of uh, subjugation, of humility, of surrender. Would bow down before that king and he would kiss his feet. It was a sign of submission. And the requirement is not any different now when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the distorted calls to the gospel you hear on Christian television, where Jesus needs to only occupy a little throne in in your heart, the reality of the gospel invitation when Christ calls us to take up our cross and to follow Him is one of radical discipleship. That that tiny crown on your head needs to be smashed and you need to bow before God in Christ. Bow in submission to Him in total surrender to God's King. You come that way or you don't come at all. You see, you're not a Christian unless you've submitted to Christ. You're not a Christian unless you have repented. That's real belief. And Does that describe you? And that's why He said, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. It's an incredible summons of mercy that God declares to all these swaggering sovereigns who are in reality not sovereigns at all. And so He says, kiss the Son. Who? The Son. God's Son. Earlier in the psalm, He's called God's King. He's anointed the Messiah. Well, who is this? Was it David? You know, in 2 Samuel 7, David is finally at rest from his enemies and The battle with the Philistines is over and he's living in this uh, cedar-lined palace. This isn't much like a cedar-lined palace, but it doesn't have those gold chairs that it had six years ago. Stepped it up in here. So did David's throne. It was nice. And so he said to the prophet, I'm going to build God a house. Look at this nice house. And God's living in a dump. I mean, a tent. 
And Nathan says, that's a great idea, David. And then Nathan goes to bed and God says, Nathan, that's a really bad idea. I don't want a man of war to build my house. Instead, I'm going to build a house for him, God says. Not a house of bricks, but a house of posterity, a lineage. I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be my son. And his son will be established on the throne forever. And that's what we call the Davidic covenant, right? God's agreement with David. And so it's not David being described here. So it must be Solomon, right? Solomon, he was the anointed one. He was a, a Messiah, an anointed one. He was adopted as God's son, adopted by God according to the terms of God's covenant with David. And this never-ending succession to continue into all eternity seemed to be fulfilled in Solomon. The greatness of Israel's kingdom never knew this kind of abundance, never knew this kind of wisdom, never knew this kind of prosperity. So it seemed that Solomon was the man, but Solomon didn't seek after God's heart and the kingdom was taken away from Solomon in fact after Solomon the kingdom itself crumbles Judah is taken away entirely and there are no more Davids but what about God's promise the prophets spoke in those dark days of exile of this coming Messiah the anointed one the king who would fulfill that covenant that God made with David And Isaiah would say unto us, a child is born, a son is given, and of the increase of his throne and his government, there is no end. And other prophets would speak of the justice and righteousness that would be forevermore on this chosen one. And a thousand years after that promise to David, there would be a king, an unlikely king who was supernaturally conceived. David's greater son, a king who would never be married. Therefore, he could only succeed himself on the throne. A king who would conquer death and live forever when he was raised from the dead. A king that when the apostles, when his apostles preached him, they would quote Psalm 2 to do it. Paul's preaching in Acts 13 and he says this, listen to these words. And though they found him, No guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he's fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's Christ. And his authority is still defied. And it will be until his victory is final. When he breaks the nations with a rod of iron and he ushers in a new creation, a final fulfillment of God's eternal kingdom. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So are you defiant? Are you thinking you are so big? You want to do things your own way? Are you comparing yourself to others? Psalm 2 is for you. It's an urgent call for you to humble yourself, to not remain defiant, not even for a while, because it's never without consequence. And to be assured of the promise of final blessing for those who have submitted their lives to Christ. Let me simplify this for you. Everything 
everything turns on your submission to God's King, to God's Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate power in the universe. Listen to God's Son and respond to Him right now. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him.